0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
1: Brought to you in part by Maine Operation Game Thief, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, and the North American Game Warden Museum. Hunt of a Lifetime, changing lives one adventure at a time, empowering kids with courage. Join us in creating memories for kids facing life-threatening illnesses. We are here to make dreams come true. From magical outdoor escapades to heartwarming experiences, every moment is cherished. With every step of our young heroes, find a network of support, love, families, volunteers, and friends unite to uplift spirits and spread smiles. Amidst breathtaking landscapes, kids find strength they never knew they had. Together we conquer challenges and celebrate victories. Be a part of the movement that transforms lives. Your contribution can bring courage and hope where it's needed most. Go to huntovalifetime.org to get involved. Let's create a world of cherished moments and unstoppable bravery. is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, episode 118, Roy Brown, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Special Agent, Wyoming. Before I get into this podcast and uh, the description of it, because I wanted to make a few corrections uh, or at least expand on some of the things you're going to hear during this podcast, So, but I do want to say a shout out to Derek Finnegan. I, I appreciate uh, Derek uh, is a senior in High school this year in Pennsylvania, and he had to do an interview with his grandfather is my understanding and the comment he made to his mother, "I feel like a real Wayne Saunders now after interviewing his grandfather thank you derek that that's a very high compliment to be referred to an interviewer so and I'm sure you did a great job That's a pretty cool thing to do to sit down with your grandfather and interview him so I'm sure you got some really cool stories out of him. On this episode, I just, uh, as I'm listening through, I I talk about a bullfight. So, and when I talk about a bullfight, I'm talking about a moose bullfight. Sometimes uh, as officers or as game wardens, sometimes I think we take for granted that people know what we're talking about. So I try to clarify a lot of things during the podcast, especially if you, uh, have abbreviations for something, and I try to bring that out, so for my listeners that don't know. So that's exactly what I'm doing. So when I refer to a bullfight and a necropsy where the two bull moose were fighting, and one actually broke the other one's rib, and it stabbed it into the bull's heart. Uh, Mike Moody actually did that investigation for us, and the necropsy showed that that's exactly why this bull moose died. So we had a dead bull moose there and we were trying to find out whether it was poached or not. And it happened to be a died of natural causes where the broken rib actually punctured the animal's heart. So when I talk about the, the bull fight, it's a bull moose. The other thing I want to talk about is cracker shells, because Roy talks about cracker shells and game wardens use cracker shells quite often. Um, a lot of people use cracker shells to scare off wildlife. And these cracker shells generally go on a shotgun Or shotgun size, but they shoot out of the gun probably 40, 50 yards and then they explode like an M80. So you usually try to get them in the proximity of the animal to scare it off. A lot of things, if it's coming into your bees, um, you know, a bear's coming into bees or something like that, and you as a landowner, you probably have it fenced and then you get this additional thing to scare off the animal. They use them at airports to scare off birds. They use them at dump sites. So uh, when they're piling up refuge and they have a bird problem, uh, they use cracker shells there. Some of them whistle as they go, they whistle and then they explode. So those are more bird scaring things. So uh, we definitely try to haze our birds off beaches when it comes to Canada geese and things like that, so cracker shells are widely used to scare off wildlife and even grizzlies apparent as Roy t- talks about using these cracker shells uh, to scare off grizzlies. very cool podcast uh, my first fish and wildlife agent, as I say in the, in the podcast, and my first Wyoming game warden. So, looking forward to doing a few more. So, if you could share the Warden's Watch podcast, I would really appreciate that. I think if you have some friends and you want to share it with them, I'm sure, you know, birds of a feather flock together and usually generally people that like to listen to the same types of things. So, and if you haven't lately, uh, get on Apple Podcast or somewhere where you can comment, uh, just to let other people know that it's a good podcast. We currently have a 4.9 rating on Apple podcast and it's uh doing very well we were I'm trying to think we were ra- we're, we're ranking in the top 100 in the wilderness podcast uh, i think we are up to number 69 in the wilderness uh genre so so to speak or that category we're in the top 100 we're number 69 so we're, we're climbing the charts too so and that's thanks to you guys for sure it's all about the listeners and i appreciate all the comments the input um, I've got some really cool uh backfeed lately. Um some interviews for you know young people wanting to be game wardens and their experiences with their oral boards things like that. So, hey, thanks for listening. Enjoy. On this Warden's Watch, I'm sitting down with Roy Brown, former US Fish and Wildlife Special Agent, and uh, it, he started off as a, a refuge officer. As many special agents around the country do and, and and maybe still do. That's kind of the foot in the door. I know uh my good friend Bob Snow and yours too, Roy. Uh you know, that's how how we met he was a refuge officer and I was a park ranger on Astig Island National Seashore, which is Shinkatig National Wildlife Refuge. It was it was awesome to hang out with those guys and learn the refuge process and then give me an opportunity to be a, a refuge officer in uh Umatilla. So I, I got that feeling and uh, that was Bob's stepping stones. And it sounds like it was your stepping stones as well. So thank you so much. A. um, you're in Wyoming right now, right? Correct. Yeah. And I haven't had a Wyoming game warden on the show yet. So I'm going to, I'm going to consider you my first Wyoming game okay. warden to start and then my, U, my first U.S. fish and wildlife special agent. So I, I, I hope we, uh, break the glass ceiling with this and we have others to follow right
2: yeah Yeah, there's several that give you some really good stories
1: yeah like like we talked about pat bosco yeah he'd be a a classic he would be a classic and i i yeah he was my u.s fish and wildlife special agent to support us in new hampshire and he's a very good friend and a great storyteller and yeah um but yeah and we all kind of similar type of things so so tell us let's start off with your refuge in the beginning of u.s fish and wildlife for you uh, actually, I did some seasonal work with the Park
2: Service in Yellowstone at first. And nice. Had some uh, you know, a lot of varied experience there, everything from firefighting to road patrol to backcountry mm-hmm. work and stuff. And then uh, I had the opportunity to jump over to Fish and Wildlife, which was where my educational background was, was wildlife more than, than park-oriented stuff, mm-hmm. at the National Bison Range up in Montana, up north of Missoula. It was actually uh, one of the first wildlife refuges Teddy Roosevelt set aside in about 1905 strictly for the bison because they wanted to have a backup herd for genetics for the Yellowstone herd. Mm. Um, and when I was there, I no clue whether it's still there, but there was one of the original signs. was half grown into one of the trees near the boundary. It was kind of cool to see that the history yeah. how long that place had been there and the purposes it was set aside there
1: Uh, that was kind of the start of it worked there had had good bosses there and yeah and when you think of a refuge just you know the bison was almost wiped out and to give them a refuge a home to stay to protect to grow a herd to what we have today what a huge success story huh it's gone very very well you know even when i was in yellowstone
2: the big push was, you know, oh, we got to keep up the high number of bison and stuff because and, they were afraid if they, if they let it, that they were lax with the management of it, mm-hmm. something would happen and then it'd be very hard to get it back up mm. to the numbers. And,
1: yeah, because we were on the brink of extinction with the bison.
2: Yeah, and the, yeah especially they were getting so limited spaces where they were. Right. So that's, that's where the bison range got kind of its origin, mm. a protected place that they could be and they it actually evolved um they always kept populations of bighorn sheep mountain goats Mm -hmm. they had a few elk um and then they had whitetail and mutant deer Mm -hmm. and they managed all those different species just besides the bison Mm -hmm. you know the bison every year they would we would gather them up and put them into uh, big holding pens, and the biologists had already figured out, okay, how many do we need to cull and keep the herd viable and mix mm-hmm. up genetics and and they would actually bring in a, a few from other locales because yep. I was there back in the mid eighties right um, and kind of get it mixed you know keep keep the genes changing up so mm-hmm. you didn't get all one um, right and they uh they had one what we'll call a segret cow who happened to have some of the genes that produced a uh, white bison. Ooh. And they they were trying to carefully play with genetics and wh- what they bred her to, to see if they could get another white bison. Yeah. They, they had had one that, that occurred naturally uh-huh. uh, before they ever said, we need to protect this one cow from, you know, all the other rigors that the others face running around the 20,000 acre refuge. Right. So a very neat place. Um, it's it's still there. It's Now it's run more by the uh salish and kootenai confederated tribes up there in northwest montana okay u.s fish and wildlife is kind of the trustee now mm-hmm. when i was working there it was totally run by the service okay uh but the, the, when the tribes got up and got their wildlife program going they wanted to kind of step into that leadership role with the bison
1: yeah um, but, yeah as they should yes you know it was the, it was their animal yep so, and when you talk about a, a white bison, I mean, that was very uh, a spiritual animal to them very as well. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. And so We had pictures. I
2: got to see pictures of the one that, I want to say it was in the 40s or 50s, mm-hmm. that just by pure luck with genetics, it popped out of one of the, the cows. Mm-hmm. And they so they kind of kept track of that strain where she came from yeah. and, and protected it. And it's, it. It's quite striking in a herd of dark brown big critters to have this one kind of not pure white but tannish white almost mm-hmm. that just stands out yeah. immensely yeah. Um, that was a fun place to work that was kind of the start of it yeah. um, as we had talked about previously I got besides my patrol work on vehicle and horse also I got to participate in herding the bison from grazing unit to grazing unit mm-hmm. as well as into the
1: cowboy stuff.
2: Yeah, cowboy stuff. Um it it uh was some interesting rides. I, I fortunately they gave me a really solid horse on one of the riding deals we were doing. My horse all of a sudden just stopped. Would not move forward. I'm like looking around like is there a bear know what's around here? Mm. And one of the other guys saw me stop and he was like, "Hold on a second. Well, there was a little kind of hill or a little rock hill kind of right in front of me that was eh, not very big, but mm-hmm. from my side, I couldn't see anything. Mm-hmm. He came around from the backside, and there's a rattlesnake called up that my horse smelled and would not move a step forward until that snake was dead and gone. Wow. It was like, well, I'm glad he's that smart because I would have yeah. kept riding. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's yeah. that's really, yeah, animal's intuition. Yeah. You know? Watching a bird dog work, same same yep. theory, same idea. There's yep. the bird. And Dude, yep. locked there's, there's, in. there's something wrong here. I yep. know it. That rattlesnakes here, and I'm not going until I know where it is and I can get away from it without getting bit. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Smart horse. I wish. Yeah. My goal riding out there, I want a horse just like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's nice to have a
2: good one. That's that's calm. That's yeah. a big key, and not and they learn to need the horses need to learn that you're in charge, and mm-hmm. then they work with you. Yeah, if if you're don't assert a little bit of dominance, they may go off and do what they want. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I tried to avoid those
3: horses.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, very smart! And there you went to Tennessee, huh? Yeah, Bison Range job was a a kind of a seasonal job, and they wanted me to come back. They said, "All right, you know, do what you want for you know the the winter months, Mm -hmm. and we'll have you come back in April and." I was talking with the manager, and he said, well, what do you really want to do this winter? I said, I'd like to keep working. You know, I had a truck payment to make. Yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. And So he got working with me, and we we checked with a bunch of refuges through his contacts uh, around the southeast who might have wintertime stuff going. Mm. And he found uh, Cross Creeks Refuge and a manager by the name of Vicky Graff, who they were doing, implementing that winter, their first ever on-refuge waterfowl hunt. Mm-hmm. And she was looking and wanting someone that could come in and do the law enforcement with the waterfowl hunters as well as kind of do the day-to-day management of the hunt mm-hmm. so they didn't have to pull staff from other – because they didn't have a big staff. Mm-hmm. It was like her and two people and then three maintenance guys, and that was it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so that having a, a fresh body in that they didn't have to pull from their limited stock right. really made it much easier for them. And mm-hmm. It was fun. It got a gut, uh, big introduction for uh, – a. Actually, born in Massachusetts, uh, going to the South for the first time. It, uh, yeah. Changing culture and learned, learned uh, a lot of new phrases I'd never heard before. And, oh,
1: my goodness. Uh, it- and they had to, when I went to the South, I went to West Virginia and they had to put a local boy with me for my protection. Yeah. So, and yeah. That, that's not a joke either. No. I mean, they, you know, a Yankee down there kind of stood out. Yep. So yep, they do. And after a few encounters of mine, they were like, okay, Jimmy's going with you. Mm-hmm. So, and we were a team from them on. And uh, I remember checking uh, fishermen along uh, the the new river and they'd be like, you know, I'd start checking license and I'd start getting a whole bunch of crap. And all of a sudden, Jimmy would come out and they'd be like, Jimmy, Jimmy, is that you? Yeah, that's me. He's like, "What'd you do wrong to get stuck with a Yankee?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then everything would calm down, and we'd we'd have a good old time. And <laughs> one of the first ones that stuck out to me, and you know, I dro- I drove a refuge truck.
2: And mm-hmm. there were, those days they were tan and had the regular fish and wildlife emblem on the door. I got a guy flagged me down on heading back into town after work, and I said, "Pull over." I said, "Roll the window down." And said, hey, what's up?" And he started talking to me he talked for 10 minutes and i swear i didn't understand a single word he said <laughs> i just looked at him and nodded my head <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. but this was dover tennessee is really really rural small town yeah he had the heavy west tennessee accent that just went right over the yankees head, yeah. as far as what he was saying
1: i i had a problem with my truck and i pulled into a filling station talked to the owner there and Just told him everything that was wrong, and he was just, like you, he just didn't say a word. And then at the end, I stopped and I waited, and there was a long pause. He goes, okay, now tell me that all 10 times slower. (laughs) And I just was like, oh, my goodness. So I got back in my truck, and I drove to the next one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they... It was it was
2: fun. I had a lot oh, of fun. It it's was.
1: fun experiencing other cultures and even within the United States there's so many little uh, different cultures, you know. I mean, being up on the the Great Lakes, uh Lake Superior, you know the Swedish influence in there and it's just uh yeah, it was it was, yeah. it was, it was it's really cool. And then you go to the South and you experience that southern um yeah, it was uh you know like up in the, on the Great Lakes who boils fish. Yeah. The churches would have fish boils all the time for fundraisers and I'm like Maybe they know something I don't, because when you boil a fish, I don't think it tastes very good. So I went to a fish boil once, and it doesn't taste very good.
2: (laughs) Wouldn't think so. One of the big, one of the bigger differences, the waterfall culture in the South is so Mm. intense, especially in those (coughs) days in the eighties. And they have different
1: names for ducks too down there. Yeah,
2: Yeah, you got to learn a whole new new, language of duck ID. And they. There was a lot of private, owned, privately owned clubs or lease clubs that mm-hmm. ringed the refuge.
1: Right. And
2: I woke up one morning and it literally, there was about 10 inches of snow. Mm-hmm. And for a guy who hunted waterfowl in the northern climes, perfect weather. Let's go slay some ducks. So I said, there's got to be hunters out. Mm-hmm. I worked half the day and didn't find a single hunter because I never dawned on me that they had no clue how to drive in 10 inches <laughs> of snow. <laughs> So they stayed home.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, everything shuts down in snow in the south for sure. Yeah. And it doesn't take 10 inches. They do it for a quarter of inch. You're right. You're right. It would have been good duck hunting that day, it though, would. for it was sure. Perfect weather for it. Oh, goodness. So, at what point did you, did you make that step from the refuge officer? And I want to clarify today they're not called refuge officers, they're called uh, just wildlife. Federal wildlife officers. Federal yeah. wildlife officers uniformed. Yeah. In.
2: A little background on that um i came I started in nineteen eighty four and when I got to the south, we had uh twelve full time refuge officers as we were called back then mm-hmm. and we got kind of the we found out we had a nickname from the management people they called us the dirty dozen. <laughs> Because all of a sudden, you know, they thought everything was hunky-dory on their refuges and this and that. Mm-hmm. And now they got a full-time officer out there working, and he ended up doing drugs, DUIs, right, all this other stuff that they never even considered. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the stuff that I got involved in, and fortunately, I had great relations with, like, the local city or the county. Mm-hmm. And they realized I was a one-man show where they had a whole force. When I, went, I actually left, I transferred from Tennessee, went to North Alabama. The four years I was in North Alabama, there were three murders that the bodies ended up on the refuge. Mm. And they don't teach you that at Fletzi. No. <laughs> so I I relied on my local guys, and they kind of understood and gladly took over the lead in it but you know that kind of stuff was always
1: different
3: mm-hmm. um, my
1: my first day at assateague island national seashore i was in plain clothes just starting that the paperwork process the reading all the sops and stuff like that and one of the guys that was working the front desk uh, walks in and calmly says hey wayne uh somebody just came and said uh, there's a body on the beach and i'm like yeah it's funny yeah <laughs> Funny, he's like, "Oh no, I'm I'm serious. He just came in, so, and I was the only one at the park that day, oh, ununiformed. No. So I, I grabbed and I sprang into action and quarantined the, that part of the beach. And um, yeah, I, I actually pulled him out of the surf too, which was another whole interesting story that I probably shouldn't talk about. on yeah. this maybe <laughs> maybe another day because that was a yeah. you know, that was an experience for a, a new guy for sure, uh, but didn't want him to you know get separated any more than he was and yeah yeah. so anyways but yeah it's the same thing you know and that just reassures that that this whole process with with preserving land managing it doing all the biology you need law enforcement because that's part of the puzzle that makes it work you need to manage the public especially in the areas that like where you were at assateague
2: Mm. high public use
1: very high um Piping plovers nesting, um, absolutely a lot of interaction, wildlife interaction with people. Yeah, at Wheeler Refuge in North
2: Alabama, it sat right along the Tennessee River between two uh, big cities, Huntsville and Decatur. Mm -hmm. So they all came to recreate on the refuge evenings, especially in the summer and and definitely on weekends. It was a crazy zone.
1: Uh, absolutely, and crime is sometimes concealed in the in the wilds, mm-hmm. no matter where you are, and sometimes committed in the wilds because of the privacy of being in remote areas and who 's yeah. in remote areas doing police work you know there 's game wardens yeah. there's sheriffs there 's refuge officers and or I gotta change my term, yeah. <laughs> but I, it'll probably never change yeah. because uh, it's too it's deep been, in the head. It's ingrained. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's, that's where in Alabama and in, in a little bit in Tennessee, uh, because of the the climate and stuff there, there was a lot of ma- marijuana growth. Mm. Where bet- better place to plant it than on the wildlife refuge? Where, where in the, where the they can't area. seize your land. <laughs> yeah, they can't seize your land, and they can't unless they catch you at it. They can't pin it to you. Right. Uh, so we we did a lot of marijuana eradication, flying in helicopters and on land. And mm-hmm. some of those were hilarious. There was one that we, because we, we responded regardless of our agency to whatever they found, mm-hmm. the, the guys in the helicopter. And we were rolling through downtown decatur alabama red lights and blue lights going and yep. dealing with traffic and getting play-by-play from the helicopter pilots mm-hmm. the guys up there because they had two spotters in the helicopters besides the pilots they're saying we got to put down we got to put down mm-hmm. so he says co- he's coming out of the house he's gonna grab it mm-hmm. and you know they figured before we could get there this guy would get out there get it and dispose of it somehow mm-hmm. and they f- found a place that was uh Darn close. And as they're setting down and hadn't even shut it down, the guys come comes running at them and they're like, what the heck's this?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, he's yelling, it's my dope. You get away. You can't have it.
3: <laughs> and it was like, well, there's the
2: admission we need. And here's the guy. <laughs> uh, he wasn't a bright stick in the box. But <laughs> oh, man. That's, uh, but that was, that was great. Oh, there's the end of the investigation. Yep. Oh, man. Uh, I wish they all did that. That'd make it so easy. <laughs> oh, wouldn't it? Wouldn't
1: it? For sure. For sure. And
2: the other funny part of working that is... You know, the local cities kicked in people as well, officers. Nice. And when we got to the the more rural areas, they were with us, mm-hmm. and we were going through trails to get to this one hidden, semi hidden patch. It was on private property, but they would try to hide it so you couldn't see it. And there was this big officer uh, in, ahead of me on, on going down the trail. You know, he was all pumped up until he went to take a step, and that stick that was across the trail. Slithered off Mm. into. And this, I'm not kidding, this guy was like 6'5 or so and 250, 60 pounds. He screamed like a little girl and jumped up and down. (laughs) And I just laughed and he just kind of scowled at me i said you city boys
1: <laughs> yeah I, I don't know i've always had that reaction with snakes too they're not my favorite thing but uh i worked with matt holmes up in new hampshire and one day i heard him do the same thing scream like a little girl and the it was funny because the, the the grass we were in was it was pretty high i mean it was you know, like just below your waist belt between your knees and your. Yeah. And I could see his knees popping up as he was kind of running <laughs> through the, the grass. So, yeah, Matt's not a big fan of snakes. Nah. And it, it's more the surprise for me yeah. than, the, than the snake itself. It's just that shocker when you. Oh, yep. There it is. And now what kind is it? And yeah. yeah. And yeah. which my
2: clue or what I look for is which way was it going? Right. If it was going away from me, I didn't care.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And, and you know, a lot of experiences in West Virginia were on a mountain bike as I'm flying down through the Mm. trails. And, you know, I I don't even know how many snakes I saw as I passed. Or, you know, one time I rode right over the middle of one unintentional just uh, flying down through. And he was in the middle of the trail. And off I went. And, you know, but, uh, yeah, uh, (laughs) that's... Uh, that's one nice thing about living in the north is that's we don't have to worry about with poisonous snakes. Too much. Yeah. Too in Wyoming,
2: much. all we got is a the rattlesnake. Yeah. And they're, compared to what I was used to in the south, mm. our rattlesnakes were maybe a, oh, two-inch diameter max and yeah. uh, two foot long out there. Of course, some of some ones I saw in the southeast, we had timber rattlers and whatnot that were like six foot long. And Jeez. Oh. About eight or ten inches around. Yeah. <laughs> it's like some big boys, big difference.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a little unnerving to think about that, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we,
2: uh, but that was the last refuge I worked at, and the whole time I started working with refuges, Montana, Tennessee, and Alabama, mm-hmm. I always would work with the local agent on various things. Nice. Um, at the bison range, we had uh, guys that would slip in and stockpile antlers, and then in the middle of the night, And then they come back like a week later in middle of the night and get that stash and take it off Mm -hmm. because they're worth those days at least ten bucks a pound or so. Wow! Um, Then you know what better place to go look than on a wildlife refuge where the critters are
1: incredible. Yeah, I think of some of the racks that I saw in Chincoteague, I believe now has a season, but we used to go up through some of the refuge areas to see some of these bucks and, you know, 10 pointers were common. Yeah. Common. That was, that was the standard deer you were going to see on the refuge yeah. and you'd get up uh, just to these crazy antlered deer yeah and you know 18 points 20 and they would yeah. sit there and no count pressure them and, and, yeah live and yeah. get fat and yeah, yeah so when you talk about antlers dropping on a refuge yeah you're talking about some some huge antlers dropping on mm-hmm. a refuge yeah yeah mm.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, that kind of stuff, plus waterfowl up there. And then when I got to the south with, with the both states, I worked a lot with the agents with uh, dove hunting and, mm-hmm. and waterfowl hunting. Yep. Uh, and that kind of was uh, getting the foot in the door, getting known. Mm-hmm. And I had kept applying. I think I applied four times before I finally got picked up because it's so competitive. Yeah, And they told us when the, my class uh, was hired – that we only hired ten new agents, and there were five thousand applicants for those ten jobs. Jeez! And they had to weed through all those, and you know some of them were easy to weed through. You know, yep. Uh, and others were like, okay. And yeah, when really you start look. with
1: five thousand, and you even cut four thousand out, you still have a thousand. Yeah. For ten applicants, yeah. so At Ten positions. Yeah. that's Crazy. And it had a great bunch that came
2: on with. uh I think all of us are retired. Yeah, I think all of us are retired now. There Might be one still working. Yeah, uh, she was fresh out of college, and she's from New Jersey, and she wanted to stay in New Jersey. Uh huh. And New Jersey isn't the most popular state for agents back then, yeah. especially. So they scooped her up because she was a, a merit scholar, did very high GPA and stuff. Yeah, very sharp gal. Yeah. Um, so she was. She may still be working because. She was a good, I think, 10 years younger than me. Okay. And that would put her at uh, mid-50s right now. So she's Mm -hmm. getting close, but not quite there. Anyway, first duty station they sent me to was was Salt Lake City. Worked a lot of waterfowl here because of the Great Salt Lake and actually hit down here at Utah Lake, but got into some various different cases. I worked southern Utah a lot with the wardens down there. And they had a a problem with... um, Herp collectors, snake collectors, mm-hmm. and Gila monsters. Mm. Uh, so we, we, I'd go down and work with them, and we tried to, oh, because they knew the country. We'd find a good spot where he, they knew the snakes would be out on the pavement on these remote roads, and yeah. we'd sit up and where they couldn't be seen, but we could see, and try to catch the guys coming in driving the road slow, and they'd see a uh, the western king snake or mm-hmm. a Gila and. You know, then they would stop and they'd get out and they have their bag and tools and put them in the bag and mm-hmm. sell them for the sale. They would sell them for the trade. Right. I uh, also got into that, leads into a, a little bit later. I got I got a call from an informant and said, Hey, I just had a young guy try to sell me a bunch of venomous snakes. I said, well, Really? He said, Okay. So he gave me his name and stuff and I started doing background on them and checking. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had just moved back to Salt Lake from. I think it was Colorado, maybe, or somewhere else that he came from. Well, he didn't realize that to have any of those types of snakes in Utah, you had to have special permits. Mm-hmm. So I tried to make contact and see about buying them. And he, you know, he was a little cautious there, but I pulled together enough info to do a search warrant on his house. Mm-hmm. This guy had Egyptian cobras, Ooh. had rhino vipers, gaboon vipers, a uh, couple, three different rattlesnake species, and copperheads and I was like yeah and he had them in a little room about the size of the room we're in right now which is what 10 by 12 or so
1: yeah that's exactly what i give it 10 by 12 and
2: he had them in these little holding pens that his little kids yeah could walk in there and undo the latch on they weren't secured <laughs> and i was like holy cr- holy smokes <laughs> yeah um I, just, it just, gives you I a little could just pucker factor, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, I could just picture those poor you know, little kids, you know, see yeah. his dad handling them.
1: Yeah. And then mm-hmm. he
2: goes in when dad's not there and opens one up.
1: Hundred yeah. percent.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And uh
2: I had my partner at the time was not a snake fan.
1: Yeah. Uh, he
2: But he had to come with because he was my partner.
1: I would have been with him. I understand. Um, you know,
2: <laughs> so once we got the preliminary stuff done with the guy, you know, got statements from him and you know told him that we were going to have to seize the snakes, mm-hmm. uh, my partner all of a sudden says, I got to go outside. Mm. <laughs> he disappeared out, outside. He didn't want to be anywhere around when we started pulling snakes out of containers. Yeah. But the the funny part of that is he went outside and just stayed away because of his phobia, but he stumbled across a shipping crate that had come from an outfit called Crutchfields in Florida. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a shipment that had just recently arrived. Hmm. So now we got evidence of him importing illegally uh. from Florida into Utah cross country. Yeah. And actually ended up, we also prosecuted the, the guy in Florida. Nice. And he was well known to our agents in Florida. Uh huh. And he tried to. He tried to get us to put our case with the Florida agent's case, and yeah. my AUSA said, nope. huh says, you violate Utah law, you're going to face charges here in Utah. Yeah. And he got dinged pretty good. And, of course, the, my my fortunate thing for me is during my time in Salt Lake, I, I'd met the guy who worked at the VA hospital, mm-hmm. uh, and his whole job at the VA is he milked snakes to make anti venom. Oh wow! So I got a hold of him. Told him we, what we was going on. We we're going to do this search warrant, mm-hmm. and I said, "Would you be willing to come with us and positively identify? Because snake expert, mm-hmm. um, and then you handle and you hold all the snakes because mm-hmm. uh, he had facilities. Right. I had an office, mm-hmm. um, and he he said one condition: as long as I can milk the rare ones, and you know, for his anti venom." Stuff. yeah I said it works for me it's that's an even trade, yeah, and yeah. we had set up after that that they went to the local zoo yeah after he was done
1: but that that's something that has to be done that people don't think yeah. about that's where the anti venom comes is from yep. the venom, so somewhere out there there's snakes being milked, so we can get our hospitals filled with these anti venoms in case yeah. they're that when they're well, i case when there yeah. is a bite yeah. that they can uh can do that and, and give that yeah, and, so and
2: he was really tickled about having the exotic stuff oh i'm sure because that stuff that he probably wouldn't have a source to milk mm-hmm. and get anti-venom for mm-hmm. and there's enough you know snake collectors out there that right it's a po- distinct possibility
1: 100 mm-hmm. um, percent. yeah yeah so now- that, nowadays i mean somebody could have anything yeah yeah
2: um, yeah that mm-hmm. that was a uh, that was probably my favorite in Utah, and you know, because there was a, there was a lot of other stuff, a lot of import export,
3: because
2: mm-hmm. uh, there was a lot of direct flights into the Salt Lake Airport
3: from yeah.
2: all over the the Pacific, especially in Mexico, and I had a ton of. Uh, mariachi band frogs from mexico <laughs> i had to keep it in my office and tagged until the the deal was done <laughs> oh man it was like tourists see them kids want them and they mom and dad buy them stuffed iguanas or another yeah it's like, all right and then those we just disposed of destroyed and just, you know, i'm sure that there was, i know there was no permits Mm-hmm. And they bought them in Mexico, and they they actually should have had permits from the Mexican government, right, to even buy them and, and then bring them out of the country.
1: Mm-hmm. But uh, yep, those souvenirs that nobody thinks of, and yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, we had a a biologist that worked for the service. Uh, she and her husband went to Africa, and that was a meeting with, that they were there, and a whole bunch of people were there, and. You know, get visiting with everybody in breaks and stuff, and mm-hmm. noticed that she had elephant hair bracelet on. Really? And the agents we start looking at each other that were that saw it and were like, "Ooh, that's not good. <laughs> that's not legal to bring into the U.S." Yeah. <laughs> and so we we let the upper echelon handle that one because she was mm-hmm. higher up on the biologist mm-hmm. ranks. And, yep. And we told him what it was, and he said, "Okay." So he had a chat with her and told her. She was like, "Oh, she, yeah." She didn't realize. No. Um, so yeah, you, you never know what you're going to run into. And, mm-hmm. uh, Utah, um, great time, great guys to work with over here. And, uh, still a lot of them. Most of them now are like me, retired. Yep. And then from from there, uh, Lander, Wyoming, duty station opened up. Yeah. And Jim Klett, who had been there, had been there for twelve years, and no everybody figured he was going to die there basically mm-hmm. you know until mandatory he was there mm-hmm. but he had a a family situation come up that he they needed to be closer to their parents and stuff and right had the opportunity to transfer back close to home and
4: mm-hmm.
2: I, I don't know how many put in but i said i've got to try for i told my wife I said that's that's one of my dream locations mm-hmm. uh f- for me if i'm not going to be on the actual coastline I want to be in the Rockies, in the mountains. Right. And, you No, know, Utah was close, uh, mm-hmm. but not like not because of my Yellowstone experience. So. Right. So I threw my name in the hat, and lo and behold, I was selected for it. So wife, uh, wife always jokes with me or with people now. Says, "Yeah," she said, "She's going to see the whole U.S., marry him, move here, move there." Said went to Salt Lake, got to see that. Went to Lander, never left. Uh. <laughs> But, so now I'm trying to make that up to her. Uh, yeah. With the traveling now that we're both retired and get her to see places she never got to see.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm doing the same because uh, our jobs uh, require a lot of us and take a lot away from our families during that time frame. So, yeah, when when you retire, you try to try to make that up to them. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, you know, especially when they stuck with you through it all. Yeah. But I tell people I says I took an Alabama girl brought her to the Rocky Mountains, and mm. she's never seen more than an inch or two of snow in her whole life. And while <laughs> we're in Salt Lake, I was down south Utah, which is a lot warmer than Salt Lake City area, yeah. working, and the first snowstorm came.
3: <laughs> when I got home,
2: she had shoveled the driveway. She had driven into work, never yeah. driven in that kind of snow before. Yeah, The snow in our backyard was level with the top of our picnic table. Ooh. Yeah, so I threw her in the briar (laughs) patch. I guess you did. That's a lot of shoveling and uh, a lot of training. So so she got used to it. That helped break her in, so she she doesn't worry about
1: it now. Yeah. For sure. And while you're in Wyoming, um you're you doing other things too. You're going let's face it, the feds like to see you travel. Yep. They they ship you here, they ship you there, there when they need an agent and sometimes you're it you're going everywhere. Yeah, so I've it's not like gone
2: all over the country basically for work details, yeah. Takedowns, we're doing arrest warrants or mm-hmm. one of the fun ones, uh team out of the southwestern region uh was a paddlefish case. Where they were being illegally taken and whatnot, and yep. they our one of our agents had worked his way in with them, and it turns out they were shipping them uh, from Oklahoma, I think was the main area, maybe Missouri a little, mm-hmm. uh, by semi truck, mm-hmm. all the way to Seattle to send them over to Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. and I got a phone call from the agent doing the case, and he's an old friend of mine. Uh, he's a former refuge guy as well and he says hey we're going to do a rolling surveillance on this semi-truck and when we get to wyoming we want you to come jump in and do and take the, the eyeball basically right uh and
1: so he doesn't get curious
2: so that the yeah, same vehicle always, has always been following him vehicles yeah. and um says yeah you got it if you mm-hmm. need it and so, and I had a guy out of Casper and a newer agent. And he he was in his truck and I was in my truck and we would, kept swapping the eyeball and we we're going through southeastern Wyoming. Everything was fine, you know, and we get up to kind of my country and a little west of me over towards Kemmerer and stuff. And, you know, the rest of the guys were still following us, but back mm-hmm. and we keep in touch by radio. And when we get up towards Kemmerer, there's snow on the road. All these boys mm-hmm. from Texas.
4: <laughs> they
2: all automatically start going 40 miles an hour and we're still doing highway speeds following this truck doing highway speeds and they were yeah. like how can you do that? <laughs> that that just totally caught them off guard and mm-hmm. uh, here we have snow in the springtime in wyoming and you know we've, we've pretty much since we've lived there 28 years we've seen it snow every month of the year yeah you just never know that's um, the
1: truth <laughs> but uh
2: that was fun you know because we went all the way into Oregon, and then we handed our roll off to the agents from that area, mm-hmm. and that was that was fun. It was it just cracked me up to think about those Texas guys agents hitting the snow because oh, they'd boy. never see it. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, that went down slow. Yeah. And, <laughs> and
2: and then, of course, in Wyoming, a lot of the stuff was grizzly bears and uh, wolves. Because I was there in '95. And that's when the wolves were released in Yellowstone. And
1: yeah, that was a big, big focus. Big controversy there. Big
2: controversy. Um, a lot of interesting meetings with ranchers and stuff. And, mm-hmm. uh, even some big public meetings and whatnot. And I got a, a call from a guy. Actually, he went through the Game and Fish hotline. He says, I trapped me a wolf. And i got him. come get your damn wolf. So they called me. And it was early enough in the deal I got to hold the local game warden, you know, where exactly is this ranch? Cuz all I had was a name. Mhm. And this is the middle of winter. So he says, "All right, meet me here and I'll, I'll go in with you." And we had another guy that was going to come join us with a with a bear trap. Cuz we don't know really what we got yet. Mhm. Well, we get there and this guy tells us his his version of the story. Mhm. He claims that he saw this wolf and his sheep, and he ran it ran it down and lassoed it with his, with a rope off his snow machine.
1: Really? Oh, no, that's
2: a pretty good trick.
1: You know? Yeah. It's a pretty good lassoer, yeah. driving a snow machine mm-hmm. and lassoing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the horse kind of runs itself while you're last suing, yep. but the snow machine, I don't, you I don't see smile, that you happening. Keep yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> not quite feasible. Mm. And then we we finally he takes us. He had it in the he actually had it in the horse trailer, and you know we're looking at it and saying well, it could be a wolf, but <laughs> something ain't right. So we we're like, all right, you know, we we'll get it out of there. So we worked it and we sedated it and mm-hmm. put it in that bear covert trap. And we got looking at it while we had it sedated. And the state guy and I look at each other and just smile. We could tell by looking at it that what he did is he ran it over with his snow machine. Mm. Because all the marks, and we brought it up to him just to see after, you know, we kind of, okay, we know what happened here. Mm -hmm. Um, He said, oh, it tried to get out through the slats in the top of the horse trailer. And I'm going, okay. Let me see. How's a wolf get up that high in a horse trailer that's, you know, like almost 10 feet tall (laughs) Mm -hmm. and get its leg through that opening and end up with that kind of injury? Not feasible, but he stuck to his story and I brought it home. It it, actually, I had it in my, in that trailer for a day or so in my driveway. (laughs) It, but fortunately, Wyoming's rural enough where we were. Mm -hmm. No one else saw it. Right. The more I, I, we go out and look at it, and I said, let me see. So I took a, a little stick and stuck it in through the back of the grate, and it snapped at it and grabbed onto it and kind of shook its head. I don't think that's really wolf-like to my my training. Mm-hmm. There's something that's not adding up here, and it doesn't quite look right because the, there's a difference in head shape yep. and whatnot. And finally got it sent up uh, via airplane, sedated again, and, and – the airplane sent it up to Yellowstone, then they put it in their holding pen to watch it for a while. Mm-hmm. And after watching it for a while, and then they sed- went and did measurements and did some blood tests. It was a hybrid that someone had turned loose, mm. and you know, of course, none of the anti-wolf people would want to believe that, right? Uh, but we ran ran to that a few times. Mm-hmm. And the the other funny one
1: on wolves was the uh,
2: yeah. I've run
1: into hybrids quite often in the east because a lot of people like to have them, yeah. and so they're not legal in Wyoming. Yeah, and, and when they're a hybrid, they're a domestic animal. They're not a wolf, so yep. the Department of Agriculture is actually responsible for wolf hybrids. Right. So, which was good. Yeah. In some ways, yeah, it would have been nice just not to have them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. They. Uh, yeah, the
2: the wolves were funny. Um difference in, um, it's not negative against them. They're just they're trained different, their background's different. But I worked a lot with the, the guys in Teton National Park mm-hmm. and we would have a uh, dead wolf show up. Yeah. And because of the collar would go off and the, the wolf biologist for Wyoming was in lander office down the road for me. Mhm. So when we get these calls we okay, let's go. Um and they they were tell, swearing to death, you know, on the phone and on the radio. Yeah, it was shot. It was shot. And Mike and I get there, and we're looking at it, and there's no exit wound. What kind of rifle can you shoot a wolf with that's not going to go all the way through that skinny body? They're not that heavily muscled. Mm-hmm. They're they're muscular, but they're not like grizz. Right. Um, so we're going. This isn't right. Uh, so we keep looking, and what we were able to find out because i used the wyoming lab a lot because it was easier to get critters to rather mm-hmm. than shipping to ashland oregon yeah and they they agreed with us and they they looked deeper and determined it was gotten a went after a bull elk and got gored and died from from that wound and was never shot to begin with
1: okay so yep. and it was okay nature taking its course absolutely yeah uh, um
2: mm. so
1: it, but, but, but they, that's the, the the interesting part is to find that we yeah. uh we did a necropsy on uh, two bulls one time uh, where it had been fighting, and, you know, one, one bull was dead, and so during that portion, we, you know, we gutted it and looked at it. One of the ribs had broken during a fight with another bull and pierced his heart.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and... That, that was, that what was killed, his day. That was his day. Yeah. And uh, kind of crazy, yeah, yeah. but, you know, until you open them up and kind of dissect that and yeah. figure out that cause of death, I mean, and it's sometimes nature.
2: Yep. Yeah, we had uh, just briefly, we had another one turn up dead and um, just, you know, it was middle of winter again. So it's not grizzly bears involved because mm-hmm. they're sleeping. They should sleeping. be sleeping. <laughs> um and we this one we had to we had to send to the lab because it was we couldn't okay what the heck killed this thing mm. well it got in a fight with the mountain lions what the lab determined and the mountain lion somehow got its jaws over the top of the wolf's head and the skull. In- punctured and, and crushed it a little
1: unbelievable
2: you know from a field decropsy looking at it that's going to be really hard to detect
4: So mm-hmm.
2: you know, they had to basically dissect the whole thing mm-hmm. and we did that with grizzly bears but we didn't use it to do it with the wolves right uh the state guys and i uh mark prosino initially and, and brian DeBolt later uh we did a ton of field necropsies on grizzly bears mm-hmm. and because We needed to determine what we could. We needed to see if the story matched up with what the shooters hit. Believe it or not, probably 80 plus percent of them, yeah, they matched did it up. in self defense. Yeah. yeah, uh, you know, we had the classic sometimes. We had a guy shoot a grizz, and then I don't remember what the distance was, and yeah, he swore it was self defense and whatnot. And, Got to examining it and we found a bullet hole. But then there was this another bullet hole up in the neck, but it had a wadding in it from a shotgun
3: jam. Mm. Go
2: <laughs> so and that wad, you'd have to be right on top Pretty of it for that to penetrate. Yeah. Otherwise, it flies off somewhere. That's right. And we're like, nah, not tell us the real story. Uh-huh. Yeah, he finally came clean that he shot it and then panicked. And uh-huh didn't think he wanted to make it in his mind make it look, look more like a self-defense mm-hmm. and you know, he screwed it up totally <laughs> uh, yeah i had one wolf case that was funny um to me uh this guy was hunting solo he was from uh actually he was from utah and he was over near pinedale mm-hmm. and he was camped out and his horses were excited one morning you could see him looking at something so he went and looked and it was literally about 250 yards away or so This is wolf just walking broadside paying him no attention well he gets the wild idea he's going to shoot it and take it home and he does and then he when he goes to leave he runs into a wyoming game fish hunter check station Mm. now he's got to come up with a story Mm -hmm. and he tells the folks at the check station that he shot it in self-defense that was coming at him and his horses and they were getting all panicked and so he got down on the log and shot it well when we did the knee crops the angle of the bullet were you in Tony Latham's presentation Mm -hmm. Tony and I did he he did the forensics with the the firearms stuff Mm -hmm. he and I did a lot of the same type of work yeah, and the angle—it was a quartering away shot, mm-hmm. and it was a, just one rifle shot all the way through. And when we, when he took us back to the place, we could find no evidence at a reasonable distance. So I, I kept him talking, and uh, I forget which state guy it was, because we were, usually had a warden as well with us. And mm-hmm. He kind of started doing a search out in that area. Yeah, and he got about two hundred fifty yards away, and there's fur and other signs of this is where something was shot. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, collected that, and of course they can match the fur, right, and all that stuff. And he he was going to fight it at first, and he told me at at court says, "Yeah, I was going to fight it." And and then uh, I he had called and asked what the fines were. And I gave him a ballpark of what they typically could be. And I, mm-hmm. I gave him the max, of course. Yeah. He said, you no. Know, he says, I actually did just shoot the thing. And I could waste twice as much money on a lawyer or just take my medicine. hmm So he, he decided that when it came down to it, he was just going to take his medicine. Yep. Rather than waste all that money and try to fight it.
1: Yep. So, and that's usually the smart thing yeah. to do. You know, it's been my experience because working, you know, being able to prosecute your own cases, you treat people as they treat you. You want to plea and I'll treat you the best I can.
2: I've used that several times. Yeah. A couple of, if we got time, a couple of interesting things. Uh, We did a grizzly bear, a couple of hunters out of Casper, Wyoming were up in what's called Pacific Creek area uh, over in kind of just south of Yellowstone, Mm -hmm. uh, national forest lands and they had gone, were going up elk hunting on foot and mm-hmm. they, what happened, and they came back and called it in and notified everybody. That's how we found out. So we went up in and they were going up the trail and all of a sudden uh, they see a sow grizz kind of woofing at them and stuff. And then she kind of disappears and they're like, what do we do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they all because they were thinking if we run, she's going to run us down, right? Because she can run way faster than they can. Mm-hmm. And what what turned out to be is she had two uh yearling cubs that were almost big as mama, yeah, and she was protecting them, so she charged them and they shot it at 10 15 yards. Wow. um and so we actually took it because it we was right on a heavily used trail. We couldn't leave the carcass there because mm-hmm. that brings in other bears and whatnot. And so we got a helicopter. And
1: I was going to say that's a job to remove, yeah, a grizzly's carcass. Yeah,
2: and fortunately, there's under the Wilderness Act, there's a stipulation for law enforcement purposes mm-hmm. to use that kind of stuff when when needed. We, we didn't abuse it. We did it on those types of situations that yep. public safety was a concern.
1: Hundred percent.
2: But anyway. Uh, That got real interesting because we got there, and when we flew in, the helicopter pilot flew over the the sow carcass, and the two yearlings were trying to nurse her. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he buzzed them, and they they scattered, and about a quarter mile away, he put us down another open meadow, and he told us later on his way back out to wait for us uh, further down. Uh, He buzzed them again, and they were still trying to nurse Mama. Mm
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So what made that really interesting? Everything was fine for like the first 15 minutes. You know, we're getting there because we do a crime scene just like you mm-hmm. would a murder. Uh, we get and all that worked out and done and documented. And all of a sudden, here come two yearling cubs. And one of the guys, Tim Fox, he was on that side. So he's, you know, spooked him off. And, uh, we get back to work and. A little while later, heard they come around this side on my end, <laughs> mm-hmm. so I spook them off, and we go like, "All right." I stood over on this end mm-hmm. where they had just come from, and Tim went on the other end. We had shotguns with us, mm-hmm. with uh, cracker shells was the first one; slugs were next. and, yep. uh, and we let Fred and, and Brian finish up the what we need to do still on the crime scene. And, mm-hmm. uh, Fred was the state investigator out uh, of Jackson. And sure enough, then dang things. Tim and I played ping pong with them. Hmm. They kept coming to him and then he come back around to me and they came a different path on one of those times. They were literally 20 yards from me hmm. before they came out of the timber where I could see them. So I whipped up the shotgun and they were close enough when I, when I shot the cracker shell it actually hit the bear on the shoulder first mm-hmm. before it bounced right off and exploded kind of next to his head. Because mm. those are timed to go off at a certain distance. Right. And they were closer than that distance. So that, that was uh, close to being a, a little more of emergency <laughs> than I would have been comfortable <laughs> yeah. with. Yeah. Uh, because a yearling Grizz is about as big as Mama. Yeah. So they're not tiny little things. So. No. No. So yeah, mm. that, that get uh, certainly able right. to survive on their own. Up, yeah, yeah. Because she would have kicked them out before she hibernated that winter. Like right they'd been on their own. Yep. Yeah, uh, and you know stuff like that that you we ran into uh, mm. comical. Just brief. I'll give you some of the comical ones that they're funny after the fact. Even even the guys involved laughed Mm -hmm. um they're the ones that actually brought it up to us family was up hunting way up in the mountains and one guy still hadn't filled his tag and once a him and one of the other guys went but the the guy already filled his tag did not bring a gun with him
4: Mm -hmm.
2: and he was just there okay i'll scout and we'll find you an elk and Mm -hmm. they were glassing a a herd of elk and and there was a creek right there so he was kind of squatted in that creek looking this direction and the other guy is, is kind of over against the bank looking at the elk so he could rest if they found one he wanted to shoot. Mm-hmm. Next thing the guy squatting in the creek knows is this, a sow grizzly with a cub had spotted him and came up behind him, and he never heard her because mm-hmm. of the water running and bit him in the butt. Oh. <laughs> and of course, that started the rodeo. Oh. Uh, it, he, he, it, he ended up much better off than he could have. Uh, but they—they they, it was a big rodeo, and afterwards he—he uh. he says, you know, he says uh, it, it wasn't nothing was funny when it was going on. Yeah. He says, but when I got home and my wife took my jeans and my—he had a handkerchief, you know, this you know, the old style handkerchief, yeah. and patterns and stuff, yeah, in his back pocket. When she went to fold it, she shook it out, and there were canine puncture holes in every corner. Of that, where folded it just right folded just the, right when the beard bit him in the room. So he kept it as a souvenir because he was telling us he was going to frame it. <laughs> yeah, I would. Yeah, because you know, he he made out okay in, in the big picture. Mm. And, um, but yeah, you got to be aware up there right. of everything. Um, yeah. And he said, I should have had my rifle with me, even though I was not. Mm-hmm. I just, I didn't need it. And in my mind, I said, all right. Right. Uh, But it's a different world. You're in their world up there.
1: Oh, 100%. Um, 100%.
2: We're no longer the... Especially if we don't have firearms, we're no longer the apex predator. Right. And basically, I did 20 20 years worth of grizzly investigations. So Mm. there's all kinds of them. Uh, We had uh, one we called the gummy bear. Got a call from an outfitter. He had clients, I want to say from New Hampshire, if I remember right. Yeah. An older couple. He had the... Tag and she came along just for the fun, mm-hmm. and of course, it was a horseback trip. And they, uh, he got him a nice little bull elk, and they did their stuff. And they sent the, the assistant guide back to camp to get the pack critters. Mm-hmm. Well, the the old old timer guide, he lays back and starts taking a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and husband and wife, for some reason, they. Had read somewhere that if you take pine boughs and, and wave them like fans, it keeps all the bugs away from the carcass and the meat and stuff. So they're, they're there fanning this carcass and up over the ridge next to them all of a sudden comes a grizzly bear. Mm. And they run and they, they literally played. You could see it in the, in the duff on the dirt where they played ring around the rosy around the tree with it. Mm -hmm. And by this time, the, the guide's kind of waking up like what's going on and. So he shoots it, which, you know, totally legit, because we're mm-hmm. talking, they were all within a 15-foot radius of Jeez, each other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but when we got there and looked at the bear, the guy says, look at this. And we opened its mouth. All of its teeth were down to gum line. Mm-hmm. It, he was so old that they had worn his teeth down so far, he couldn't. He probably could not have killed a live critter himself because mm. there's no no canines to right. do the damage. Mm. Uh, but he was after that gut pile that right. had the soft, chewy stuff that he could still eat. Right. Uh, but yeah, that was that was a unique one. I've never seen mm. one that old, that worn down.
1: Right, and hence uh, the use of silencers on mm. weapons when you're hunting in grizzly country yeah. and things like that, so they yeah. don't know. You know they don't hear it as They'll well. Hear it's it. a
2: dinner they, bell, right? Well, it, it, to an extent, but the their smell is the main factor.
1: Is it okay? They,
2: they can smell stuff a mile away.
1: Yeah, I got a buddy in Alaska that deer hunts, and you know they they pack out most of yeah. um on the mountainsides and stuff. And he's like, that's the first thing. Yeah, as you're you always got to be aware aware yeah. of what's going on. Pick yeah. your head up, look around. Be efficient, be quick. Yep, yep. You've got it. Because <laughs> those brown bears sneak uh, right up on you, and he's yeah, like, "Yeah, it's never, it's unnerving." They smell and, it and, shh, and he's like, yeah. "Let them have it." <laughs> yep,
2: yeah. So they, uh,
1: mm. yeah. Oh, that's, that's,
2: smelling, they They hear well, but their eyesight's not the greatest. Uh huh. And you know, I've had so many folks unfamiliar with grizzly bears tell me, "Oh, it was it was going to attack me. It was up on its hind legs." Mm. That's not true. When they get up on their hind legs because they're curious, they're trying to see what you are. Mm-hmm. And that's why they're moving their head like, Yeah, what is that over there? Right. So, yeah, I get all those reports. But you know, so many of them are, are legit self-defense.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I had an old-timer. Uh, I mean, this guy was in his 70s, still solo hunting for elk and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, not he wouldn't go way back in the backcountry anymore just because, and I can relate to that my age now, my knees wouldn't handle it. Right. <laughs> uh, but he, he, had, uh, he had the camper on, his, on the back of his pickup, and he took off one morning, and he always brought his dog with him, which for me was big game hunting, and dogs, they could smell it. it right. It makes sense. But anyway, it was his, I, get, I think he was more concerned about uh, predators, mm-hmm. and the dog would probably sense predators before he ever would. Good point, you know. Um, but he had stopped because he had climbed a hill coming out of his campsite and stopped to catch his breath, and he looked back, And here's this Grizz basically following the exact same trail that he and the dog had just taken. Mm. He was like, "Uh uh-oh. So, he kind of stayed there because he had timber right there. And it came, you know, it didn't, I can't, i say it went straight to him, but following his trail. Mm -hmm. And he actually let that thing get 25 yards before he shot it. Mm. And it it was still coming straight towards him. And I'm like. You know, and I tell him. Says, as long as the distance is reasonable for your personal comfort, mm-hmm. the guy with the wolf at two hundred and fifty yards, not so no, much, not so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, you know, thirty five feet, thirty five yards. You know, it, it mm-hmm. all's a matter of how comfortable you are. Yeah. But, um, you know, I my incident with the the yearlings. You know, mm-hmm. I could hold back and not do that second round until I knew what. The fact right. that that firecracker had, mm-hmm. uh, the,
1: and I imagine that was very effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it you could see it when
2: it blew next, kind of almost next to his head. He was like, boom mm-hmm. yeah!" And turned around and ran off, and the second one just followed him, right? Because she heard it, but it wasn't right next to her. Yeah, uh, huh? Yeah. So it, it's a it's a different, and that's one of the things with Wyoming. Uh, great place to hunt, but for non-residents, it's a very hard place to draw. Mm. Uh, and they do it for one of the reasons is in wilderness non-residents have to have a guide mm-hmm. a licensed outfittering guide uh that've done too many search and rescues mm mm-hmm. um, understandable yeah and people it's expensive you know, yes very expensive mm-hmm. and, uh the other thing you know guys who are a good horseman back home
3: mm-hmm. but they don't
2: ride those mountain trails right. that like we have out there yeah. and they get in wrecks and you got to come in with a helicopter and but if you You know, the guides are trained, the outfitters are trained. Mm -hmm. They have it all, everything kind of already in protocol where they need to call based upon where they're at. Yeah. And get, get the, the crew in to rescue them and stuff. Yeah. uh, Even, you know, some of my friends there in Lander, you know, I rode horses as part of my work. Mm -hmm. The government provided me, uh, initially I had two horses. At the end I had one. Um, to do that kind of backcountry work, mm-hmm. um, but I've had friends that've ridden for years. As I tell people, says if you ride horses long enough, you're going to have an accident. Mm-hmm. And I, we've had friends had break their backs, break their legs, mm-hmm. and even though very experienced riders rode for decades, mm-hmm. it's going to happen eventually. You yeah, know? it's a matter of luck. You know? mm. <laughs> so yeah, it, there there's. It's rough enough wilderness and country, and some of you, some of the New Hampshire country is pretty nasty too. In the higher yeah. for elevations there, I speak from experience from my younger days. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. But yeah, it, it's uh, you got to be a lot more aware and a lot more geared towards it. Um, mm-hmm. And briefly, if we got a couple more minutes, I'll, sure. I'll touch on some of the other stuff they we got to do as agents, and that was one of our instructors for firearms and I was also mm-hmm. an armorer mm-hmm. um, and did some other I did a lot of teaching for other agencies
4: mm-hmm.
2: uh, everything from local police departments all the way up to U.S. Marshals and stuff mm-hmm. and so I had a lot of teaching experience and one of the guys that was running the training program they started doing international training and particularly in the continent of Africa and mm. So I had the unfortunate duty of, of five times going over to Africa and teaching game wardens from different countries over there nice. how to do crime scene investigations. Yeah. And for me, you know, anybody could teach it, any good agent, warden for sure. Yeah. Uh, but the extra kicker is having done the grizzly and the wolves, dealt with big, dangerous critters. Exactly. Like they have. A
1: hundred percent, yeah.
2: And, they you know, they could – could, flash pictures up there of dead grizzly bears and, and they, they're like "Ooh, that's a big boy you know mm-hmm. you know, got a, a five six hundred pound eight some of the biggest were up around 800 pounds
1: right um, comparable to yeah. you know a lion mm-hmm. a rhinoceros a yeah. hippo and then when you show you them know. The, you know you know because there's some pictures we're looking at their teeth we
2: got pictures of it yeah. see how big those canines are and yeah uh, so it's uh, that was a lot of fun that, that it was really neat to go over there and teach them to see the light bulbs go off in their head. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, because they, they had a lot of trouble in a lot of those countries where they were never taught how to collect evidence and preserve it. Mm. And so it got to court and sometimes the evidence couldn't be found because mm. a couple of the guys told me in, in their country, any evidence they had to turn over to a local police department. And depending upon how ethical that guy was it may disappear it may not
1: Mm -hmm. it may still be there and everything for a price yep yeah
2: so yeah they and they you know there's a lot of stuff they'd never thought about and Mm granted, that they wouldn't why would you yeah of how to how to do things and tricks Mm -hmm. and stuff that we've learned Yeah. got to share with them that was Mm -hmm. rewarding and a a very good part of the of the whole agent experience Mm mm-hmm yeah, and it's you do so many different things in the wildlife career like you know. Mm. Um you know, when I worked in the park service they trained me in mountain rescue and firefighting. Yeah. When I went to the southeast, I was on a team where we climbed into bald eagle nest and banded uh eaglets with wing markers and leg bands. Um awesome. Yeah, the, the, the lowest nest was like thirty feet and the highest was hundred and ten feet
1: in the air. Yeah. So cool. So
2: yeah, and you're literally climbing into a some of the nests were half the size of this room. Mm-hmm. You know, the size of a pickup truck bed was very common on a bald eagle nest. Yeah. Just some, in the wildlife business, a lot of really cool stuff that very you, cool. you can get into. Just you never know. It, it's different, different parts of the country, different things.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's why I, I love talking about things that I don't know, like grizzlies and all those things that yeah. I didn't get to, to experience in the East it fascinates yeah. me. So,
2: Yeah. Uh, did you ever know Bobby Garabedian? He was our agent in Albany for years? I, I knew of him. Okay. Uh, when I went through the, the special agent basic training after I uh, got hired as an agent, and they do it for everybody, they set up a kind of a check station at a at a port mm-hmm. you know, where you drive into the country. Yeah. And I, I'd been out west for several years and dealt mm-hmm. with grizzly bears, you know, prior to going to the southeast. And then the trunk of the car that pulls up is a grizzly bear hide. And I look at it, and he, he just knows it's a bear height. Mm-hmm. I start pointing out all the difference. Why I can say it's a grizzly bear, of course, and threatened species, mm-hmm. and you know why it's more protected than the black bear would be, and whatnot. And he was like, "I never knew any of that." Mm. <laughs> but he was in New York, right? He didn't deal with grizzly bears, right? When I first that first uh, stint in Yellowstone is the internship that we had a call from a an elderly lady in of Montana, just outside the north entrance. Mm-hmm. And she was had, uh, I don't know, half dozen chokecherry trees, crab apple trees in her yard, both. And the bears, a sow with, with a cub, was coming in every night, every evening, and would sit there and gorge on
3: them. Mm-hmm.
2: She couldn't go anywhere out of her house. So she was she, locked out. Yeah, she was locked in the house. And, mm-hmm. you know, she called, you know, Can you help me? Mm-hmm. So they went and set up traps. Mm-hmm. Well, they finally trapped both Mama and the bear in two separate t- traps. Mm hmm. And so they they grabbed a hold of me because I was working in the chief ranger's office during the internship. Yeah. And they brought it right there to Mammoth. And they said, all right, Roy, she sedated, and pulled her out of the trap and said, all right, you hold her head. Here's this guy mm. with a semester to go in college still, never seen a grizzly bearer in his life yet. I've got a sow grizzly head in my hands. It's the size of a basketball with canines about two inches long, and I'm going, please don't wake up. Please mm. wake up, because the first thing she's going to see is me. Yeah, <laughs> and that was that was my first introduction to grizzly bears. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They they did the what happened, and she got so excited or upset because the cub was in. It was a little cub. Mm-hmm. Was in one trap, and she was in the other. Yeah. She kept running in face first, snout first, into the the uh, grid stuff at the end of the culvert trap, mm-hmm. and split her lip between her nose and her her mouth, uh, which is about that far. So what's that, two inches three, or yeah, so, three, three inches? inches yeah. And the vet was stitching it up while I was holding her head. Uh, um, and that's why I had to hold her head steady so that he could get that done. And he had self-dissolving stitches. And, yeah. uh, and the cub was, after we got that done, the, one of the other guys and I were checking on the cub, and we noticed there was a, a – piece of wire in there that had gotten in there somehow. And we said, yeah, that shouldn't be in there. could get injured, you know, step on it in the paw or whatever. So we crank up the gate just enough to grab it. And just as we get it out and start the gate down, that cub jumped up and came straight at us. Mm. And here's this little, oh, two-foot bear. (laughs) It still was enough for you to jump back like, whoa. Oh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, a lot, a lot of those experiences that, that stick with you
1: because that—that uh, was
2: 1980. What was that?
1: 1981. Nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you don't remember. You know, you do You never forget holding no. uh, a grizzly bear's head in your hands. Yeah. Never. Mm-mm. Never. No banding eagles. You never forget banding eagles. Yeah. yeah so, geez, Roy, thanks for sitting down and sharing with the listeners of Wardens Watch your experience as a, a U.S. Fish and Wildlife officer and as a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Special Agent. You tour around the country, Africa, your experiences with uh, grizzlies, which is, uh, yeah, in my my mind is epic, you know, just uh, I wish I could live another life and be a game warden in the West.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's definitely, that's one of the things with Nawiya that I'd love to see is the exchange program, mm. where... Someone from New Jersey can go do an exchange with and spend whatever length of time, week, whatever it is, with British Columbia Mm. to see something totally different.
1: 100%. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That that's a great program that Noeya has for Yeah. That,
1: uh, yeah, the officer exchange, get out of your comfort zone, see what the other side does. Yep. And vice versa, the yep. British Columbia guy going to New Jersey, and oh my god, his head's gonna spin too. So yeah. which I, I they gotta have the one of the highest populations of black bears and black bear problems, yep. the most black bear problems in the country. So yeah um population versus uh you know black bears it's just uh that's where they meet that's where most of our uh incursion problems happen and the the people bear situations so no and uh thanks for sharing uh so much roy i I just appreciate it so
2: you're welcome enjoyed it great (laughs)
1: is Warden's Watch.